Welcome to the Zone Podcast. Hi, I'm Liam Ford. And I am Paula Benetton. And on today's podcast, we have a very special guest, Dr. Hammond Pandya. Now, he's a radiologist who is in very much a world-class sense. He's a specialist, but he didn't start that way. He started from very humble beginnings in the UK, and now he's flipped his whole career to become a coder and an entrepreneur, and he wants to change the world to make it better for doctors and for patients. So a very exciting podcast today. Enjoy. So welcome to the Zone podcast. And today we've got Hammond Pandya. He is like a world-class radiologist. And we've got a really interesting story. Let's just start in the 1970s in Leicester. <laughs> and how do you go from 1970s Leicester to a world-class radiologist in the UK to a world-class radiologist in New Zealand to now coding. <laughs> I mean, it's mind-blowing. Yeah, hi, Liam. Uh, so, look, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. And, well, I don't think we've got that long in this podcast, but we'll, 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 we'll try and rush through. So, you know, I, I grew up, my family background is originally from North India. However, my parents actually lived in East Africa and they migrated to the United Kingdom as a number of uh, sort of similar people did at that time. And really, I grew up in a very mm. working class society. And really, it was very aspirational for me to do medicine. And one of the uh, things that are often talked about when it comes to Indian or Asian, I should say, families is that Asian parents want their children to either become doctors, lawyers or dentists or accountants. But I can honestly say that my parents were completely left me to my own devices, you know, whatever I wanted to do. So I'm very thankful for that. I really had a deep, deep thirst for knowledge. And I think that that's really what's driven me to this point. And uh, it was always aspirational for me to do medicine. There really weren't very many examples in my local community. And it was, to be honest with you, mainly based on sort of television and, 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 and you know, external sort of presentations. So I followed the career of medicine and I've been very privileged. You know, I, I studied at a great medical school in, in Sheffield, and then I decided to train uh, as a surgeon. I initially wanted to become a pediatric surgeon. And so I started mm. uh, pursuing that line. Very shortly after I started on that journey, I, I, I met my uh, wife and my daughter was on the way not too long after <laughs> that you know, a couple of years after that. And really, I think that was the first point that I started sort of just sort of appraising the, the whole of medicine and, and where I was going. And at that time, I sort of made a conscious decision that I realized that the potential sacrifices that I would have to make were really too great to make. And I didn't want to be at this stage of my life looking back with regret because that is the, one of the most bitter pills to swallow. So at the time, I, I made a lateral move to radiology, which was really very popular branch at that time. Lots of people mm. were heading in. And I think that was on the back of the wave of a number of newer technologies that were coming out, such as uh, MRI 
scanning and, and nuclear imaging, which is really coming to the fore. So I trained as a radiologist in another five years and really uh, got to a very privileged position. I became a consultant in one of the largest teaching hospitals in the UK, in uh, Birmingham. And I started doing that for uh, a couple of years. And I think it was really the classic story of climbing that ladder very, very quickly and getting sort of swept up in life. And not mm. really, you know, when you have children, you bring them up and, yeah, and you, you, you really don't question uh, who you are or what is your purpose in, in the world. Mm. And it was really, it got to a point where mm. I once caught up with a friend of mine who had migrated to Australia and he came back to the United Kingdom to visit his family. And we ended up having a, uh, having a great yarn. And uh, you know, it was during that conversation that he said one of the most shocking things I'd ever heard in my life. And that was, you know, listening to you, um, I haven't seen you in a couple of years time, but you know, what you've mainly talked about is your house and your, you know, where you live and the job that you do. And, and that just absolutely knocked me sideways, you know, and it really, made me stop and think, my God, you know, who am I? Who have I, what have I become? You know, mm. it's an almost a realization of, oh my God, I'm living in the matrix, you know? Right. Yeah. Wow. So it was really at that point when really all externalities were looking brilliant. You know, you, I had technically made it, but, you know, deep down, I really felt something was wrong. You know, I was getting home very late to see my children and I just felt something was wrong. So uh, on, on a crazy whim, I decided to surf the internet for jobs abroad. And I ended up seeing an advert for a job for a consultant radiologist in Waikato Hospital <laughs> in <laughs> Hamilton, as you know, which is one of the uh, sort of medium-sized cities, right? Yeah. Having never even been to Australasia, I sent my CV off uh, and, you know, within a few days I'd been interviewed and within six months we'd packed everything. My wife was uh, absolutely thinking I was crazy, but she, she was going along with it at the time. And we'd put our house on rent and we moved to Waikato, you know, to start a new life. And then really life as you know just you, we start off with with plans and, and then life happens and really mm. it just transpired that uh, when i arrived in new zealand i just happened to be one of the few people who had very practical experience and knowledge of uh, a new cancer imaging modality at the time which is called pet ct scanning which allows doctors to see cancer at a much earlier stage compared to other imaging modalities and I ended up collaborating with another radiologist uh, in Wellington. And I got involved in a lot of projects. Uh, they were all sort of private. And it's really at that point that I started getting exposure to really what's possible in medicine if you apply the right sort of ethos behind your work. And of course, being a product of the National Health Service, a very much an institution in the wider sense, a traditional institution, mm. there was always a little bit of, what's the best word I should say, uh, consternation around private practice, etc. But really what I was able to see at that time, well, when I came to New Zealand was that the public healthcare sector 
simply couldn't afford the massive capital outlay. They had more than enough costs coming up to stay afloat, really. And, you know, we were able to introduce this imaging modality first in Auckland and then later on in Hamilton. And really, I guess what that exercise did with collaborating with other doctors, becoming partner, part of a private practice and sort of learning about business and how to use money well in healthcare. Uh, you know, it, it always puts a smile on my face when I think, my God, you know, one point or close to two million people have access to this imaging modality and I had a hand to play in that, you know? Uh, so it's a really kind of thing. So that really, really got the uh, juices flowing. Wow. Mm. And, uh, and then eventually that sort of, entrepreneurial slash sort of contribution bug hit me. I thought, right, what else can we disrupt? What else can we make better? And I then, after a few years, uh, decided to move to Auckland to set up my own uh, private practice. Uh, And it was really to take an imaging modality, which I think had been very, very underdeveloped, underfunded in New Zealand. And I really wanted to bring that up to, 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 to a higher standard. And mm-hmm. really, I did that and uh, almost went bankrupt doing it. Wow. Learned, learned a few lessons along the way about the difference between what people say and what they actually do. Okay. You know? <laughs> that's and another story. <laughs> that's another story. But I was lucky. You know, I, I, I was lucky to learn the right things. I had the right kind of guidance. I, and I turned the situation around. And, and luckily, uh, a few years later, I was then able to exit from the company and Really, I was at this juncture then of thinking, well, well, mm. what now? You know, and at that time, really, the whole field of artificial intelligence was gaining a lot of traction. This is like five, six years ago now, possibly seven years ago. And, you know, it was gaining a lot of hype, a lot of traction. And there had been a number of sort of statements made by luminaries of the AI world. I mean, one of them was Jeffrey Hinton himself, arguably the father of modern neural networks. And and another one is Vinod Kosla, who's a very uh, sort of, you know, famous uh, VC based in Silicon Valley. And they made comments to the end of, of, hey, you know, I I wouldn't bother training as a radiologist if if I were anyone, because you're all going to be replaced. (laughs) Yeah, in, in a few years time. And there are either uh, two types of reactions you can have to that. One of them is, oh, really? You know, thankfully, I didn't have that reaction. I had the other reaction, which was, oh, really? And I, I started to then, you know, look into AI. And I'd, like I said, I have got this lifelong passion for learning. And I always wanted to learn more about you know, computers and digital just the digital realm. And so I started uh, learning about AI and uh, doing some online courses, uh, learning to code. And Mm. really, that's what really started off as a hobby, which really has got out of control now and uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, led me in the last few years, last two years to really predominantly move out of medicine. I only practice a day a week at the moment, but the rest of the time, uh, I'm a software developer and, as you know, startup CEO, founder. And really, I just thought to myself, there are really very many things that do need fixing in medicine. And, and I would really like to try my hand to see if I can contribute to this space. Wow. So you, you really are on a mission and you've just... Yeah. Yeah. You're using different tools now to execute on that mission. Yeah. 
Uh, and it's sort of interesting that, uh, you know, everything is connected and nothing really, I believe, happens truly in isolation. So it is really mm. that journey parallels a sort of another journey uh, it, on, on, on a personal level, which has sort of led me to really question the whole paradigm of modern medicine, you know, and the whole idea around information and the confusion between that and knowledge, you know, which is a, a very big, there's a very big difference between the two. Mm, so tell our listeners, what do you see is the difference mm. between information and knowledge? Because that's fascinating because clearly you, you're sitting on the knowledge side, like don't just give me yeah. the, the facts and da 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 you know, turn it into knowledge. So what's, what's the difference? Yeah, so, so this really sort of speaks to what we are, what I'm trying to do with uh, Sector, uh, the company. And really what I'm trying to do is build a system that encompasses and encodes tacit knowledge, right, that is gained and, and make that really available at the point of clinical care in a situation where myself as a radiologist, I would actually need mm. that to do my optimize my job. So really, I guess, talking towards that, one of the uh, books that has really sort of influenced me uh, of recent has been uh, a book written by Daniel Kahneman, who uh, is famous for writing the book Thinking Fast and Slow, based on his previous uh, research with Amos Tversky. So he's written a book called Noise, a fascinating book, which really talks about this something that represents a central tenet to where I'm going. And that is recognition that so much of human judgment has a huge amount of variability, right? And really, um, in fact, you know, any instance where a human is making a professional judgment, there is uh, what they describe as noise, which is an unnecessary variability in judgments, you know? And that uh, need not, in fact, apply to uh, medicine, for example. It need not apply to, for example, the variability that you get in different radiologists interpreting the same information on a scan. You know, different radiologists can come up with sometimes really quite variable opinions, right? And that can even relate to things like uh, right. judges deciding on an appropriate sentence uh, for the same crime, for the same, you know, you'll find really quite shocking uh, differences in variability. And uh, without going into the detail of the causes for that, I, I think it represents one of the biggest problems in, in medicine, in the care that we deliver. And another way to perhaps consider it is that sometimes when you have somebody who is a real expert, although I, I'm always cautious using that word expert, whenever you have somebody with a lot of experience, maybe the so-called 10,000 hours, you know, equivalent in a field, it is fascinating to me how that knowledge of that single person can completely sometimes swing a case and entirely change the outcome of what happens to someone's life. Right. And, and that's quite a dramatic realization. And so that's really one of the things that I'm trying to sort of uh, deal with. And it's, it's, it's a huge problem. But 
I think one of the reasons, and it's a difficult problem, it's a certainly a non-trivial problem to solve. And I think part of it is that because medicine has perhaps, well, well the system that teaches you to be a doctor really does uh, value information, I think, more and more. You know, it's, it's the number of tests that you have done. The idea that you cannot consider disease, I believe, outside the context of the whole human being. You know, the, the mind, the body, and the spirit without having any religious sort of uh, connotations wow. to that. You know, the, the soul or, or what we identify as being that. I think all three I have seen over my career how dramatic a difference having the right attitude can make in your recovery. And I actually believe that medicine, we, we really do have it wrong. You know, we are taught disease. We are really not taught wellness. Wow. You know? mm. you know? uh, That's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So you are really trying to solve one of the, one of the major issues in, in medicine, you know, and, yes. and uh, you know, mm. reducing this variability and then thinking about people as a whole yes. and thinking about wellness, not just disease and how we connect as humans. Absolutely. I think, I think that's, that's a great word. Connection is critical, you know, to, to understand. And it's certainly not without its challenges because, yeah, trying to produce change in a system that is, I, I certainly don't think it's by design, but I think it is by consequence. And collaboration actually is often, is not as common at some levels in medicine as I think perhaps the general public would like it to be or think it is. You know, and one of the possible explanations that, that I've sort of come up with with that is, well, let's just look at the journey of a typical person who becomes a doctor. Typically, what you have is, well, first of all, you know from a very young age that you really have to have good academic grades to be able to get into medicine, ah. right? And that is mm. really much more of a demand and supply issue more than anything. And unfortunately, they use grades as the main marker or have done traditionally. So really what you'll tend to find is, is that those children in a given classroom, say in, in, a, in a small town, wherever, you know, those children that will be even eligible or in with a shot will tend to be the brightest in the class. Mm. And really you'll tend to find that from a young age, they have a certain drive or a competitive spirit perhaps. So what happens is, is that uh, all of these children end up then getting selected out and actually put into another crucible where they are all in this crucible together now. Wow. Right? <laughs> I see where and, it's going. <laughs> yeah. So then, even though to pass medical school, you have to reach a minimum standard, which applies to everybody. You know, there is no, at that level in medical school, most medical schools, there isn't a only top 10% will qualify. It is, if you show competency, then you will get through. And yet that inner sort of conditioned reflex of competitiveness really never leaves us. That drive really never leaves you because you've been conditioned from a very young age, I believe. And so really what happens is you end up in medical school and then you 
qualify. And then, of course, once you decide to specialize, you then go through a really tough cycle of exams. And that is based on centiles. You know, not everybody qualifies. And and I remember uh, taking the exam, the final examination for to become a member of the Royal College of Surgeons. And I remember it was the, the final day after, you know, this is years of studying, was a brutal day of, you know, a, a full day full of face-to-face examinations where different groups of people mm. uh, ask you really, really tough questions and, you know, you've got to get through. And I remember the uh, experience at the end of that day. And I remember it particularly because at that time I had decided that I really needed that examination to move on with my career in radiology. You know, I couldn't get shortlisted for a radiology job unless I had this qualification at the time. And we, we had a child, my daughter, and my son was on the way. And, you know, so the pressure was even greater. And I remember uh, standing in this room and it was in, in the Royal College of Surgeons and a gentleman stood upon a podium and pointed to a, a door. That door was open and what you could see through that door was a table uh, laden with champagne glasses. And the gentleman said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read out numbers and if your number gets read out, then you can make your way, you've passed the exam, and you can make your way to the, uh, to the room, you know, to, to, to see the lady standing outside of the room. And so you're standing there, there's about 150 of you, you know, some of them are, are much older than you, and they start reading these numbers out. And what happens is, I remember quite distinctly, there was a, a, a Chinese man next to me, and I remember him reading certain numbers out and then skipping a few numbers and getting to another number. And the Chinese man putting his hands in his, you know, eyes like this and just sobbing all of a sudden because, of course, his number hadn't been read out, you know. And and this guy had probably put in, you know, a lot of work. And, and what was worse is you could see gradually as the numbers were called out that people are in the room clinking and cheering. And, you know, it was this whole brutal, I thought, wow, this is just inhumane. And yeah. And so, you know, that brings me back to the point that, well, is it any wonder really that new entrants whenever you're trying to produce change in the medical field? Is it really any wonder that it can be very, very difficult to produce change, particularly within that realm? Wow. What, what, <laughs> we've had some <laughs> awesome stories, awesome <laughs> stories, and I'm sure we could uh, dive very deep into any one of those, any one mm-hmm. of those stories, but I know our time's just about up. And I want to give you the, the opportunity and I, I want to thank you first for the you know clear mission that you're on and how much you've contributed to people's well-being you know and probably saving lives so you know thank you from from me for that and last question I guess is you know who do you want to talk to and you know how do people get hold of you I mean I know you're a little startup and you you know you're, yeah. you're not looking for Medical clients, uh, but no. is there anyone? Because they never know, might be a listener out there that would be really interested in contacting you or connecting. Yes. Yeah, so as I said, I'm very much self-funded. I, I've programmed and, and built 
the software platform myself with a little bit of help from a, another developer. But really, yeah, I'm in it for the long haul. Actually, what, what I really want more than anything is I have nothing really to sell per se, because this software, we intend it to be certainly for the most part free to use. But really, I, I would love to hear from anybody who is particularly a machine learning expert who really wants to contribute. You know, you know, certainly if you want to reach out to us, you can go to the website www.sector, that's spelled S-E-C-T-A-U-R dot org, uh, fill out a form, or if I give you my email address, you can hopefully post that on the podcast. Uh, but yeah, look, reach out. I want to hear from people who really want to make an impact, really. And, and really, that's who I want to hear from. That's great. Well, what a fantastic ending. Haven't, that's just amazing. And of course, they can get you on LinkedIn and it's H-A-M-E-N-T, Hammond. Correct. Panja, P-A-N-D-Y-A. That's correct. So if you want to lean in and lend a hand to make a real difference, Hammond's your man. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the update. Yeah, thanks so much. Hey, Liam, what an interesting conversation. And I love that part when he says you wouldn't be a radiologist and he just has the option to go, oh, really? Or, oh, really? And just get really curious about, you know, like the unknown, the things that we don't understand and how he went on this journey just to to learn and look where it led him. Yeah, from world-class radiologist to world-class programmer. It's pretty cool. <laughs> and I, I loved his reference to Daniel Kahneman's book, Noise, and how that noise that we have impacts our accuracy and our focus and our worldview and that can skew skew results and skew validity and the other thing that really stood out for me was you're not just the job that you do you know he he had become addicted to the material world and the trinkets and he saw that in other people around him and when he looked deeper into his own eyes into the eyes of others he saw that look of longing in their eyes is, you know, like there's got to be something more than this. Uh, and that really, you know, hit home for me. Yeah, and that may, reminds me so much of Reboot. <laughs> ah, yeah. Well, you know, I know that we created Reboot to address this real particular problem with in my travels around the world in the last 25 years and seeing thousands, thousands of people, thousands of executives and seeing that also in their eyes that they've created this wealth or the status or position and they've got you know the cars and the white picket fences and but they're they're not happy and you know that's that's why we created reboot to help people on that journey to rediscover their authentic self so yeah so if you'd like to take a look at reboot if you find yourself in a similar position where technically you've made it, but you know there's something else, there's something missing, then go check it out. It's thezoneschool.com slash reboot. Yeah, we hope you enjoyed the podcast. Ciao for now. Yeah, ciao for now and great time to reflect on those big life decisions. Have fun. Have fun.